Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to be closing out our study of the book this morning. We'll be wrapping everything up. And some of you may be very grateful for that because throughout this book, Solomon has uh, methodically taken away every pillar of hope under the sun that anyone could possibly look to for ultimate satisfaction. He's pointed out throughout this book the, the limits of wisdom. You can be the wisest person in the world, but eventually death catches up to everyone, the wise and the fool. He's pointed out the emptiness of pleasure and possessions. And you pursue after those things with all that you have, but in the end, none of it ever is satisfying. He's pointed out the emptiness of work. You can build up a name for yourself. You can build up a huge company, be the CEO, the president, and none of that is going to matter at the end because eventually someday you're going to have to hand that off to someone else. And Solomon points out they may be a fool and everything that you've worked so hard for can come crumbling down. He's pointed out the loneliness of wealth. I don't know if you remember that, but we talked about how when you're wealthy, you can't really trust the people that are around you. Are they with you because they like you or are they with you because they want you to pay for something? Wealth can have a lot of benefits, but it also brings with it a lot of problems. He's shown us the realities of injustice among uh, the authorities and among the ruling class. Right? With power comes a lot of corruption in many, in many ways. And so he's shown us the limits of that power. And so the constant refrain throughout this book is that you should enjoy life all that you can because eventually all the things that I just mentioned, they're all going to be taken away from you in your death if they're not taken away from you before that. Right? All, all that pleasure, all those possessions, your job, everything that you put value in other than God can be taken away from you even before your death. Right? Nothing is guaranteed. Right? So you just never know what might happen. And this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon's going to remove any hope over we, that we might have over one last thing, and that is our youth. And now some of you might be thinking that you lost your hope in your youth a long, long time ago. And I'm with you on that. I really am. I have felt old for a long time. Uh, but some here this morning are young, some are vibrant, they're full of hope. And I hate to say this, but Solomon has his sights on you today. He's going to inform us on why we need to remember the Lord in the days of our youth because those days do not last forever. Uh, so we're going to open it up with a word of prayer and then we're going to dive into Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that your word speaks truth into our life and to every area of our life. And I pray that today as we see the futility of youth, that we would cling to you in all that we have, all that we think, all that we do. I pray that we would be mindful of what's to come. What's promised in this life is sin and brokenness, but we also know that you are over it all, that you are sovereign, and that you are in control. And I pray that we would place our hope in that here this morning. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. It says, Remember your Creator. In the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, 
when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the well broken, the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. What we have in these verses is advice from Solomon about building up our relationship with God but in our youth because at some point all of this stuff is going to begin to go downhill very quickly. Right? He describes the downhill ride at the end of verse 1 and that continues on all the way through verse 7 in a poem that describes the process of getting old in some rather unflattering ways. Right? So what we should note from this is the idea that we need to be ready for the bad times uh, by solidifying everything that we know, everything that we believe about God before those bad times come. Right? The best time to prepare for a storm or to, to lean into God is before the storm comes. That way you are ready when the storm is there. It's hard to cling to the promises of God if we are not already solidified in those before those hard times come. All right, so Solomon says in verse 1, that we need to remember God in the days of our youth because hardship is coming as we get older and there may be a time in our life where we begin to despair of life altogether. We, it's just gotten so difficult, so hard, so scary, we just don't want to do it anymore. So what do we do before that happens? How do we prepare to trust the Lord to remember Him before we become old. It says that we should remember Him in the days of our youth. We remember Him by trusting in Him. We remember Him by obeying Him. We remember Him by walking with Him in all that we see, think, and do. Right? Why should we do that? Well, the rest of the poem is coming for us. This poem that we see in the tail end of verses 1-7 to has apocalyptic language in it. Right, that's how bad that Solomon sees all this stuff is that's coming for us. In verse 2, he's talking about the sun and the lights darkening along with the moon and the stars. And if you look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that's language that talks about the end of the world. Right, before Jesus comes back, we hear over and over again that the sun will be dark and the skies will go dark. And what he's talking about here is that the entire world may not be ending as we make our way through this progression of this poem, but our world is ending. As we grow older and older, we get closer and closer to our own death. And so we see here the, the degradation of our bodies in this poem. It begins with, there's two possibilities here. It begins with either the weakening of the eyes or possibly the mind. It says there, the lights begin to get dark. Right? As we get older, it gets harder and harder to see. And also, it gets harder and harder to think. We don't process things as well as we used to. We don't see things as well as we used to. 
And then from there, we see in verse 3, he talks about the weakening of our extremities and our major muscle groups. When he's talking about the guardians of the house, he's referring to our arms and our legs. They begin to tremble. The strong men stooping refers to the bending over our backs where the muscles are no longer strong enough to keep us up straight. So we begin to hunch over a little bit as we walk. The women who grind, that reference there is talking about our teeth. Right? We stop being able to chew because our teeth have fallen out and there isn't enough there to be able to eat solid food anymore. And so the grinding stops. Verse 4 talks about the loss of our hearing. He's talking about the doors of the street being shut and the sound of the mill fades away. But there's a harsh flip side that he mentions there because you can't hear anything that matters, but what you can hear is the bird that wakes you up in the middle of the night. Your sleep is suddenly broken. You don't get eight hours of sleep anymore. You get two or three hours of sleep and then you hear a sound and all of a sudden you're awake and can't go back to sleep. Verse 5 talks about the realities of becoming afraid as we get older. Right? We're afraid to climb up to get things because we're afraid we'll fall. Right? The, the courage of youth is replaced with trepidation. Right? We don't drive as quickly as we used to because our reflexes aren't what they used to be. Right? We don't talk to many new people because we're afraid of what they may do to us. As we grow older, we become more afraid. It talks there about the grasshopper losing its spring, and it seems to refer to bad joints. Right? We don't bounce up from the ground as quickly as we used to. When we bend over to pick something up, it aches and creaks as we stand up again. And the last thing that he mentions as going away in this poem is absolutely hilarious to me because it points to one of Solomon's main priorities in his life uh, because in some of the translations it talks about the caperberry right there near the end of verse 5. The caperberry was a known aphrodisiac at that time. And so Solomon wraps up the decline. So all this stuff's going bad. Your eyesight's going bad. Your mind's going bad. Your back's going bad. Your arms and legs are going bad. Your teeth are falling out. And the very last thing that he talks about going on the decline is your sexual desire. I mean, where are his priorities? Right, for someone that had a thousand women in his life, I guess we shouldn't expect anything else. Uh, but it says there that not even that aphrodisiac can help get your sexual desire back to where it used to be. And all of this is moving towards a final end in death. There he says that the mere mortal is heading to his eternal home, which here is re re referring to the grave. We need to remember that Solomon has, throughout the entirety of this book, he's been focusing on everything under the sun. And so when he's talking about your eternal home, he's not focusing on heaven or hell. Here he's referring to the grave. That's where he's expecting to spend the entirety of eternity is back into the dust from which he came. All right, the imagery in verse 6 points us to the system of getting water being broken. He's talking about the cord and the bowl and the jar and the turning wheel. And all of this is referring to everything that brings life-giving water to us. And all of these things are broken. Right? This is the end. There is no more going back to the well, going back to getting the water, refreshing ourselves, reviving ourselves. This is the end. And we see in verse 7 again the imagery of dust. We are made from the dust, and to the dust we will return. 
And Solomon looks at all of this and he says, futile. It's futile. Everything is futile. So if you're here this morning and you're banking on your health or you're banking on your youthfulness, just remember that this is not how things will always be for you. With age comes the breaking down of our bodies. And if we have not made our peace with that before the breaking down occurs, we may find it difficult to, to turn to the Lord once we are in the pain of older life. When everything is starting to creak when it's difficult to get out of bed, when we find ourselves afraid of this and that, it may be difficult to turn to the Lord in those moments. This is why he says that we need to focus on who God is and what He means to us in our youth before this happens to our body. And there are some who believe that these words right here are the last words that Solomon actually wrote in this book. Due to the nature of the last few verses here, Many believe that it was probably someone else that came along after Solomon had died and finished up his thoughts for these books. Uh, But no matter who wrote them, verses 9 to 14 have a good life lesson for us that we need to remember as we move on from the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's take a look at those, 9 to 14. It says there, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And so we see here the reason why people believe this was written by someone other than Solomon is because it goes into the third person here regarding the teacher, which makes sense. It's pointed out in these verses that the teacher had made a constant effort at educating people uh, on wise and accurate sayings. Now, whoever the author is here, Uh, states that there is much value in the sayings of the wise because they act like cattle prods. One common cattle prod that the shepherds would use back in these times would be a piece of wood with some nails driven into it. And the reason why they would do that is because it was cheap and it was efficient. Right? So if you've got an animal within your herd that is not doing what you want it to do and you pop it on the bottom with... Uh, a board with some nails in it, it will get its attention and it will begin to listen uh, after that. And so he's saying that there is much value in that because these wise sayings, they act like that cattle prod. They act like something swatting us in the butt when we're not doing the things that we need to be doing. And it pushes us into the right direction. Or at the very least, it takes away any excuses that we, we may have for why we're not doing those things. So the author here is letting us know Like a cattle prod, much of the wisdom that comes to us may be painful in the moment that we hear it. But if we listen to it, it will move us in the right direction. Oftentimes those wise sayings point out our sin. They point out our flaws. They point out where we are falling short of what God would have us to do. And yet when we 
hear these and when we see them, then it shows us, hey, this is what God expects of you. And it should open our eyes to the truth of that and push us in that direction. And you may have found as we have gone through the book of Ecclesiastes and we've seen the wisdom within this book, we may have found much of it difficult to hear because Solomon may have been attacking the very ideas and the very places which you have placed your hope. Right? Maybe money, power, prestige, work, knowledge, wisdom, or youth. All of these things are good things when they are properly handled. But we have placed too much burden on them when we begin to look at them for ultimate things. Ultimate happiness, ultimate joy. It's not going to work. And Solomon may have hurt your feelings a few times throughout these, the chapters in this book because you see like that is something that I have clung to for my well-being. That is something that I have clung to for my identity. That is something that I have clung to for my hope and my joy. And he's saying that it can all go away. If we move any of those things to a place of authority or a necessity in our lives, we're setting ourselves up for failure. They will go away. None of these things are ultimate, and every single one of them will let you down eventually. There is no hope to be found in any of them. And it, listen, if they don't let you down in this life, let's say that you have built that company, and you know, you're Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, and you're sitting here with more money than you could spend in your lifetime, and nothing's going to take it away, and you take that all the way to the grave, eventually the grave will get it all. Nothing can protect you from this. When you die, it does not matter how much money you had when you were alive. It doesn't matter how much power or prestige you had in life. It does not matter how smart you were. It doesn't matter how well people thought of you. Now, when you die, the only thing that matters is how you lived your life and what you did with Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. That's it. Nothing else carries weight in eternity. You can read every book on wisdom that has ever been written. Right? The author says in verse 12 that there's no end to them. If you want to seek wisdom, you can find it. And it's nonstop. You can spend your entire life seeking the wisdom of the ages. You can study all the historical documents that exist in the world. You can read every clever thought that has ever passed through the mind of a clever person. But at the end of the day, he says, you're just going to be tired. That's not to say that wisdom is not valuable. Solomon has made it very clear that all knowledge, all wisdom is helpful for life under the sun. But... At the end of all of our studying, the only words of wisdom that we need to be, focused on, uh, be focusing our lives on are these. Fear God and keep His commandments. These two tidbits of wisdom is what our entire lives should hinge on. We have, have we lived our lives in the fear of the Lord? And have we kept His commandments? And our answer to the second question is going to be determined by our answer to the first question. Do we live our life in awe and reverence of our Creator? 
If the answer is no, then we're not going to keep his commandments. And if you're not keeping his commandments, then you do not fear him, nor do you love him. And you cannot say that you love God or that you show him honor and respect and yet completely disregard what he has told you to do. I heard this saying in seminary and it really stuck with me and you've heard me say it many times and I'm going to keep saying it because I love it. It's that your stated belief, what you say you believe, plus your actual practice equals your actual belief. What you say you believe doesn't matter if what you do doesn't line up with what you say you believe. What you do will show you your actual belief. You can say whatever you want, but your actions will prove your heart. What you do shows what's going on inside. You can say that you're really into healthy living, but when you down a box of Twinkies every day, we really know what you value. You can say that you're really into your family, but when you work all the time, when you're never at home, people can tell what you really value. You can say that you're really not into drama, but then you cause a lot of drama. People can see what you really value, what you're really into. Literally, your actions speak louder than words. When you say that you're really into Jesus, but then you live your life like you'll never meet him in person, you say you're really into Jesus, but you act as though you will never be held accountable for what you do. People can tell what you're really into, what you really value, what you really love. And Jesus is clear in John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So our obedience for Christ comes out of our reverence, awe, and love for him. And why does this matter? Why has the author pointed this out here at the end of Ecclesiastes? Because everything that we do, everything that we do will eventually come before God in judgment. Everything. The author says every hidden thing, whether good or evil, all of it will be brought before God someday. David says this, Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12 Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. God knows it all. He knows every disrespectful thought. He knows every selfish inclination. Every lustful and covetous look. He knows it all. God knows what you spend your money on. God knows what you spend your time on. God knows what's actually valuable to you. He also knows when you sacrifice for the good of others, even if no one else sees it or acknowledges it, He also knows when you have failed and you have sought repentance even if no one else will listen to your pleas for forgiveness. He knows when you work harder than everyone around you and yet you don't get recognized for your efforts. He knows it all. And it's going to come back to play at the end of your life. One day, 
Each and every one of us will stand before a holy and righteous God and we will give an account for how we lived our lives. On that day, listen closely, God will expect perfection from you. Perfection. Many people don't believe that. Many people don't believe that the holiness and righteousness of God will make any difference when they stand before Him in judgment because they believe that the love of God will override every other aspect, nature, and attribute that God possesses. Right? They're going to sit there and they're going to think about this grandpa God that will pat them on the head and He's going to say, I know that you have broken every single one of my commandments, but I love you anyway. It's okay. I had no actual expectation that you would listen to me. I got bad news for you if you're here today and you believe that. That's not how that conversation is going to go. Hebrews 10, 26-31 tells you how it's going to go. There the author says, For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31 says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's how that conversation will go. That's the reality that each one of us face who choose to stand before God based on how we chose to live our lives. That's what we deserve. Judgment, condemnation, wrath. One sin is enough to condemn us and yet we have all lived lives that are full of rebellion. We've all gone our own way. We have all done our own thing and each one of us deserves the condemnation that that would bring to us as we sought the things under the sun more vigorously than we have ever sought after God. There is no grandpa sitting in a rocking chair waiting for his grandchildren to come and visit him. No, we go to stand before the holy righteous creator of all things to give an account for our lives. And if we choose to stand in our own righteousness, there is no hope. There is no hope. Just like Solomon found no hope in the best that life had to offer. You cannot live a life better than what Solomon got to live. And he found it meaningless. Completely and utterly futile. And if we choose to stand before God in that manner, then the best thing that we have waiting for us is eternal death, eternal condemnation, and eternal wrath. And you're sitting there going, man, this is the week before Thanksgiving, Pastor. What are you doing right now? There is hope. There is so much hope. God made a way for us to stand before Him, even though He is holy and righteous. He made a way for us to stand before Him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
right? Knowing that no one in this room has the ability to live the life that we have to live to hear well done, good and faithful servant before the Lord. God sent Christ to do it for us. Jesus came, stepped out of glory so that he could be put on this broken, horrible flesh that has been cursed by sin. He has to go through all the terrible things about growing up. A skinned knee, someone telling lies on him, being betrayed by people that we care about, sickness, hunger, thirst. Fatigue, all of it. He goes through all of that and lives the perfect life that you and I can't live so that he could go to the cross, die the death that we deserve, and take all of our wrath on himself. And what does he do after that? He offers us righteousness as a free, gracious gift. You can't do it, I'll do it for you. Here's my righteousness. There is where you should be thankful. And he presents that before us all. And all we have to do is see our brokenness, understand what we deserve, and repent of our sins and accept the salvation offered in Christ. And we will be in the kingdom of God forever. Co-heirs with Christ. So when I stand before God one day, I will not stand before God as Chris Hamblin, the broken, broken man. I will stand before God and He will look at me and see His Son, Christ. I have His righteousness. I am a new creation. And that is presented before you all. This is what Solomon lost track of throughout the whole course of the book of Ecclesiastes. Because there's more to life than what is under the sun. And we need to live that way. We need to live as those who have an understanding of what it costs for us to be put back in right relationship with the Father. We should live as though we actually believe what we say we believe. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, but we have the gospel gives us the opportunity to be broken people. Right, the cross of Christ proves straight away that you're not good enough. So we don't need to put on airs that we are. Right, the Apostle Paul says that he was the worst of all sinners. I think I could give him a run for his money. I think many of us here could give him a run for his money. But that is not who we are. In Christ, we are sons and daughters of the King. Solomon was an actual son of a king. And he was the wisest person that ever walked the earth. But he missed it. He missed it. He missed the truth. He missed the glorious, beautiful truth of the gospel. And I pray that you're not missing it today. I pray that you're not looking at anything that Solomon has pointed out throughout this book, anything that he has said, it's going to burn up. It could be taken away from you at any moment. I pray you're not looking at that for your hope. 
for your joy, for your satisfaction, because it will leave you wanting every single time. The only thing that you can put that hope, that joy, and that satisfaction in that will never leave you or forsake you is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it is my hope and prayer that today we would have a heart that desires nothing more than to remember you, that has a desire to to find our hope in nothing else other than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, give us clarity to show us that nothing in this life offers us anything of value outside of Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who is currently choosing to stand before you on their own merit, I pray that you would open their eyes to the futility of that. Solomon was right. Life under the sun is futile. But life in Christ is the most beautiful, amazing thing that we can ever experience. And I pray that everyone here today would have a desire to experience that. Lord, it's in your son's most precious name that I pray. Amen.